Hi, I'm Wayne Jacobson, and I want to welcome you to part one of The Jesus Lens. This 24-part series is designed to help people appreciate God's revelation of Himself through the Scriptures. For handouts, PowerPoint slides, extra resources, and video when it is available, please visit thejesuslens.com or the Jesus Lens pages at lifestream.org. It's times like this that understand why Jesus came before there was all this technology. As much as I'd like to see some of his sermons on videotape, he came before we had all this. Didn't even leave us a book, a videotape, an audio tape, nothing. Tonight we're going to do a little bit of a recording of some material about helping people understand how Scripture becomes an important part of our spiritual journey. Unfortunately, after I worked on the shack and the shack came out and everybody loved it and I loved my time working on it, I began to hear strange comments from people like, you know what, the shack is the best story of God's revelation of love I've ever read. Even people saying, I've stopped reading the Bible because I read the shack. And as much as I enjoy that book and as much as I enjoyed working on it, I find that comment to be pretty scary to me because I think the best story of the revelation of God's love in the world is the coming of his son. It's, it's not a black woman in a shack in Oregon, for Pete's sakes. It was a Jewish little baby and boy and then grown man in Nazareth over 2,000 years ago. And that story and how it comes about in the whole of the Scripture context is an important story for us not to lose touch with. However, for a lot of people who, go, who read The Shack or read He Loves Me or read So You Don't Want to Church Anymore, and they feel like most of their spiritual life has been embedded in these rituals of religion or just religious obligation or training or whatever, sometimes they throw out the baby with the bathwater. And if they read the Bible, and I've, heard, I've had this email hundreds of times. You know, I read the scriptures, I come away so condemned. So much does it provoke that performance-oriented, obligation-based life I lived for 30 years that I just have given up reading it because it's not valuable to me. And I, be honest with you, hate those kinds of emails. And I'm glad they're writing to me because I usually encourage them to say, you know, be open to the fact that maybe you misunderstand what's there. Maybe what we unpack the scriptures with is so much religious language and religious obligation. And I, th- and I think, honestly, we've turned the book into something to fight over, something to argue theology over, than to be a significant part of our journey. And I, and I think it is a significant part of all of our spiritual journeys. Is it necessary Well, the early church didn't have the New Testament, and they did okay. You can get to downtown Indianapolis from here if you want to without a car or a vehicle, but it's a whole lot easier if you have a vehicle to get you there. And I I think that's where the scriptures are. Are are they essential? They're essential in my life. I wouldn't want to live this journey without them, and I'll explain why. But I don't have the conflict some people do when they hear about a loving God in the shack or read about it and he loves me or hear about me talk about it, that come away conflicted saying, I don't know, I don't read about that God. The God in Scripture seems pretty angry. He's always whacking, thumping people. And I'm just kind of tired of dealing with that God. So it's just me and Jesus, and we just live inside this relationship thing. So as a follow-up to transitions, I really wanted to help people think through how you read the scriptures. And I'm going to do that not by offering, you know, the Jesus lens is not the definitive way Jesus reads the scriptures. That's not what I mean by the title. I mean reading scriptures through the life and revelation of Jesus. That's what I mean. That's how I do it. This is not going to be, those of you who want to use this as an 
academic study for the right way to read Scripture, you've dialed into the wrong thing. This is really how I read Scripture. This is how it has made sense to me over the 40-some-odd years that I've been a student of Scripture for my whole journey. And my journey to learn to live loved and live in the life of the Father and see God as an Abba, not an angry judge, that is fully informed by these Scriptures. I've not moved anywhere in my theological understanding of God that I didn't think the Scriptures sustain and support. But when you just do a casual reading of Scripture, by the way, we've mostly interpreted, most people miss that. So we want to talk about how that happens. And the starting point, how, we, how I want to start this first of, of the sessions that we're going to do together is to talk about the inspiration of Scripture itself. A, a verse that is familiar to so many of us, we've heard it millions of times, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I stand by that statement. So nothing you're going to hear in the next 24 sessions of this, or the next eight hours that we're planning on doing this kind of teaching, is going to undermine that statement. I do believe that God breathed these scriptures. I do believe that the full objective truth that God wants us to know is in these scriptures. I believe it informs our walk. I believe that it can correct us and adjust us. But that, what we miss in just that statement alone is the fact that there's not a person among us, and we'll talk about this more in the fourth hour together, there's not a person among us who in reading the scriptures doesn't interpret the scriptures. You can't read them without interpreting. And not all interpreting is God-inspired. And so not everything that's instructed from scriptures, even when people, and we'll look at some examples tonight, when people are giving a scripture in verse, does the scriptures actually mean what they're saying they mean? And we'll talk more about how we interpret. But I want to start from this platform. I accept the scriptures as inspired by God. I think he inspired them. I think he inspired people to write. They wrote so that we would have an objective basis by which we can measure the reality of the walk that God wants us to have with him. But I don't believe that God left us with scriptures alone. When, when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, John 14 through 16, you'll hear a lot more about that tonight. Because tonight, how we're going to work this, tonight is basically we're going to be in the introductory material and in the Gospels. Tomorrow night, we're going to take on Acts and the Epistles. So the remainder of the New Testament on through Revelation. How does that fit into a larger story? And then on Saturday, for those of you that are here, we're going to go back through the whole of the Old Testament and show you how this same story is a throughput from the very beginning to the reality that Jesus wanted us to uncover himself. All of it will be undergirded by this. I do accept these scriptures as they've been formulated to be God-breathed, God-inspired, and useful for all the things that scripture says. But one of, the com one of the complaints I get from people is, yeah, but how do you trust that? I mean, you're, you're a guy that talks about people who, who don't necessarily trust all the religious structures that we've invented over the last 2,000 years. And how do you know that the canon, as we constructed it, holds that same kind of reality that we've given to it for 2,000 years? Because if you look at the history of the canon, some of I gave it to you in the notes if you want to look it over. But remember, these, the, particularly the New Testament books, the Old Testament canon was pretty much there when Jesus came. It had been in the Jewish community for a long, long time. But the Gospels circulated just as stories that people wrote about the life of Jesus and got circulated among the churches. Luke, and, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. That got circulated. It's kind of a history of the life of Jesus and then the life of the church. And then beyond that... Um, 
we have the letters from the apostles written to specific churches oftentimes, sometimes written to a given area, sometimes copied and circulated around. But these people didn't have copiers. So anything that was copied and circulated was handwritten somehow and passed on to other people. So these things weren't common among the early church believers. They didn't have all this information. But we do have, as we're approaching 170 years A.D. now, so we're talking about 140 years after the time Christ was here, Enough of these letters have circulated that the early church fathers from a variety of generations are talking about what's in the book of Mark, what's in the book of Romans. They're beginning to talk about these books. And they're talking about how they're informing the church to, to believe what it believes and to live what it lives. But we're talking about 140 years after Jesus was here. And then by 200 years after Jesus, or 150 years after, just 60 years after Jesus was here, it's kind of, people are going to put those books into collections. So they're actually talking about not them as individual books, but now collections of books. But it was another 100 years past that before some of the books got accepted. Early on, there were, there were problems with Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude. Those were books that weren't held in as high esteem as the other books. At the end of uh, 300 AD, uh, Hebrews had gained pretty broad acceptance in the church. But it wasn't until 397 AD, so now we're talking 350 years after Christ was here, before all 27 of these books got assembled into a canon and got figured out, so, okay, these are the scriptures that we're accepting and putting on par with the Old Testament. And if you know much about church history, by 400 years in, the church has already got some significant corruption going on. It's got some significant priorities that are going askew as it's become a more accepted, larger institution with power that people want. And so a lot of people I, I talk to go, I'm not sure now. You get to 400 AD, how do we know they got the right books? How they know they didn't miss something? And so why I accept this canon the way it is, and this is an often used creedal statement that you'll hear today from people. This is, a fun, this is an evangelical statement. We believe that the Bible, as originally written, was verbally and plenary inspired, is the product of spirit-controlled men, is therefore truth without any mixture of error. We believe the Bible to be the center of true Christian unity and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried. So that, that's kind of, if you look at people's statement of beliefs, you're going to find that a lot in what we call the evangelical community. I agree with some of that. There's problems with some of that. One of it, we believe the Bible in its original documents, its original form. Well, we don't happen to have any of those. All those are gone. We've got pieces of things, and some of the pieces of Hebrews we have don't match some other pieces of Hebrews we have, or our marks. Some include passages that aren't in other passages, and so scholars have had to say, oh, we don't have the original. But if we had the original, it would be perfect. And that, that makes a pretty big leap, since that's easy to say since we don't have it. Uh, we've got to deal with the book as we have it. And uh, is it inspired? Was it written by men? Yeah, I'm good on, on most of that. But then you get down to language like, on this basis, uh, all creeds' opinions will be tried, and now we're talking more legal language. It's a little scary for me. But in overall, I'm okay with most of what's here. I'm okay that this book, as we know it, becomes the foundation by which we live our faith. And it's part of that whole thing we talked about before, about equipping us for every good work that God might want us to do. So why do I accept these? There's, there's three reasons why I really embrace what's here. And this is, the, this is the second of the three. The first one is I accept the inspiration of the book, and, and I accept all this because of the test of time. Over the last 15, 8, 15, 16, 1700 years, there hasn't been any other book, any other letter, any other gospel that's kind of ascended into the public domain that has the same ring of authenticity, that fits into the same narrative. There's inconsistencies in how some of the books, some of the, there's 
Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas written about the life of Jesus, you know, making clay birds and breathing life into them and flying away. You, you got things like that that are out there written back somewhere in that time period, but none of them have risen to the level where a, a, a mass of people have said, this bears the weight these other books do. And I, I think that carries an awful lot of weight with me. The second thing is the internal consistency that I see in these books. Uh, I see things, and I'll just give you an example. But when you read, as we're going to talk about this, reading the Bible not as a book of law, not as a legal book that we're all supposed to process, I'm going to posit for you in these days that this book is a story of God's unfolding revelation of himself. And in that story, when you look at it as a story, not a legal book, what you're going to find is the incredible consistency of writers over hundreds of periods of years in very different context, talking in language that's incredibly similar and also is language that has a forward sense of movement, that this may be true, this becomes increasingly true, now this becomes the way we live. This is a good example of it. Psalm 23, David saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Powerful verse, we all know it well. Then you get to Ezekiel 34, and Ezekiel early on talks about the problems with the bad shepherds. Woe to the bad shepherds. They've come in and harassed my flock. They've come in and done things that have been hurtful. They haven't sought out the strays. They haven't healed up the wounded. They haven't fed the hungry. And so Jesus said, or God says in this passage to Ezekiel, so I'm going to get rid of the shepherds. And I've heard this taught in numerous pastor seminars that I've attended over the years. And it's always God's going to get rid of the bad shepherds. And so, you know what? We need to be good shepherds. And if we're going to be good shepherds, we need to do the opposite of everything the bad shepherds were doing. And that's pretty much where the sermon lies. And yet in Ezekiel 34, the fix is not at all, I'm going to get rid of the bad shepherds and bring in good shepherds. The fix is, I'm going to get rid of the bad shepherds and I'm going to shepherd the people myself my servant David, referring to the Messiah, that there's going to come one now who becomes the shepherd of the sheep. And God's not going to put it in the hands of men anymore. God's going to take it on himself. And then John chapter 10, you're very familiar. Jesus comes saying, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice and they'll follow me and a stranger they will not follow. And then he says something very, very profound, which we haven't seen fulfilled in our day, at least the way we look at it. He said, and then they will be one flock with one shepherd. And if you look at the church of Jesus Christ across the world today, I'm not sure we're seeing one flock. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of flocks, thousands of denominations, all believing things, some the similar, some slightly different, all feeling like, yeah, we've got it more right than they've got it. And so at some point you get down and say, well, the reason we have so many flocks is because we don't have one shepherd. When Jesus was in the upper room with his guys, he didn't leave us with a book. He didn't hand the guys a book and say, listen, this is what I want you to follow. What he did give us was his Holy Spirit. Jesus invites us in the upper room discourse into a relationship with himself as the post-resurrected Christ, with his father, the Appa that we could know as we've known, as they were able to know Jesus, and this another comfort, it's Holy Spirit that would be with us. And Jesus conveyed that the guidance into all truth wouldn't be a book, but would be the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't see that in conflict with the book. But I do think that informs us to say, well, it's got to be bigger than that. It's not just now we have a legal book so that we can know right and wrong and do what we're supposed to do. Now we've got a text that we can live with that way. But now we really have both a text that expresses God's truth in a story. We've got a spirit who lives in us. And if we bring those two together, then we can find a way that both of those don't work in conflict with each other. 
they work in concert with each other to help us be informed into that life. And so part of it is we're going to look at that progression, that eternal consistency. And, and then part of the problems, uh, this is why I think it's a story, and this is why I think the idea that every word was inspired by God in the original documents. Let me just give you a very simple example. The story of the fig tree, Jesus cursing the fig tree. Matthew and Mark both tell the same story. Well, sort of the same story. For Matthew, when he tells it, the fig tree dies immediately. As soon as Jesus curses it, it withers. In Mark, it does, it's not withered till the next day. And if you just read them at face value, you have two very different stories. Slightly different on the detail. Not different in content, not different in, in force and impact, not different in what it's trying to teach. Just different in that we, we've got a little bit, did it do it overnight? Uh, did it do it immediately? And the text seems to be in conflict. So how do we handle that? Well, the people that believe the original versions are inspired will tell you, well, you know, if we had the original Matthew and the original Mark, they would be fine. They would line up. But, you know, scribes copying it down the road, somebody changed immediately to the next day, and so now it's, it's just a problem in the text, but it's fine. I wonder if, and here's what I'm going to posit to you, because I don't think Jesus or God leaned over these guys' shoulder and dictated every word to them. I'm really going to pause it for you, and as we look at the story unfold, I think you'll come to see, I hope you come to see it, if it's true. And if it's not true, then I hope you don't come to see it. But I hope what we come to see is, here are men who are, who are inspired by God to write their recollections of the events that they were a part of, to write their insights of things they felt like God said to them. And over the course of the whole of Scripture, as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we can see, particularly in the Old Testament, some of the things people thought were true of God are even being overturned in the Old Testament. And Old Testament people are saying, no, that isn't true. And then in the New Testament, it's even overturned again. Jesus says stuff like, we heard the ancients said this. Well, I'm going to tell you this. And he lets us know that there's an unfolding story here. And even in the course, and if you go to just not only the fig tree, but go to the resurrection accounts, you've got Jesus, you've got the, all four of the writers of the New Testament have four very different accounts of the resurrection. They don't have the same people in the same locations at the same time. And it really takes a lot of a spiritual or theological gymnastics for a scholar to kind of harmonize all that and make it look like. You've got to really force some things. If you just did a natural reading, you'd say, wow, this doesn't sound like completely that all the facts are the same. Well, if God wrote it, it they should all be the same. If men wrote it some 25, 30 years later, they may recollect things a bit differently. I don't think Scripture is neurotic about that. I think what Scripture is clear about is he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, people saw him. People saw him that day. People saw him later in the day. If one person heard the story differently, because they all weren't there at the same time watching it unfold. Some were running to the tomb to look. They're hearing the story later. And so as we look at who's writing these things and why they're writing these things, I think what we get to relax into is saying, okay, we don't have to make every detail, force it to line up when it doesn't. We can be honest enough to say there are times when it doesn't. But the important things do. The overall Jesus raised from the dead appears to these people, and in appearing to them, their lives are transformed. And so I think within the book itself, and we'll look at more than that, there's also the cleansing of the temple story. There's two events seemingly of that. Uh, one early on in the ministry of Jesus, according to John, some the week he died when he was back in Jerusalem right before his death. How did that parallel together? And again, if we're not so preoccupied of, did God dictate this? So if we find one detail out of order, then we can reject the whole book. I think what we find is, no, God's inspiring people to write their recollections. In the sum total of their recollections, we have the truth. So I, in that sense, we're going back then to John or, or 1 Peter 3, or 2 Peter 3.16. 
all scripture is inspired. The totality of this is inspired. I don't know if that means every individual verse you can pull out as a proof text and say, that's what God says. And you certainly know you can't do that when you're reading Job. And Job's counselors are saying things that God later says, those are nuts. Where David's saying some things in the Psalms that are brilliant, wonderful, and unpack God in a beautiful way. And other things that we come to see later in the life of Jesus. You know, David had a bit of angst that wasn't all fully redeemed yet. He had a shame issue as deep as, uh, as the Mississippi River today, which is overflowing its banks. I mean, David had some issues going on. And if we let Scripture, it's not us going through and saying, well, I like that from David. I don't like that from David. We let Scripture interpret the whole of it. The whole story makes sense in the way that we get to see God and live our lives in Him.